mould in buildings is something that we have in only relatively recent times realised is quite a health issue. You're listening to the She Renovates podcast. You're listening to She Renovates, the podcast for women who want to renovate to create an income and a life they love. This episode is sponsored by the Renovation Bootcamp. It's the renovation fast track for replacing your income now or at retirement. It's our core training and a prerequisite for our Wonder Women program. It's the perfect mix of online and live training. There are eight modules delivered online that you can complete at your own pace. Alongside that, we run eight live Zoom tutorials where you can connect with me and our resident experts to help you to apply the training to your personal circumstances. It includes our signature system, the one that we use to produce an average of 100,000 profit from Cosmetic Plus renovations, plus a repertoire of strategies to make sure that you can progress regardless of what's happening in the market. If you'd like to know more, go to www.theschoolofrenovating.com forward slash bootcamp. Okay, hello everyone and welcome back to She Renovates. Now today we've got a topic that's not so pretty but for renovators very important and that is mould. Now I first became aware of the issues that mould causes with health when I started listening to the Bulletproof podcast. I think it's become a little bit more mainstream now. People are much more aware of the issues with mould in homes and in buildings. And I've invited an expert on to talk today. We have Andrew Savage of the Building and Design New South Wales. Have I got that right, Andrew? Business Development Manager for Architecture and Design New South Wales. There we go. There we go. And it's Savage. Oh. <laughs> That's okay. Very happy to go with Savage. It sounds a lot more upmarket, yes. but it's Irish, not French. <laughs> oh, 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 okay. Well, that was a bad blue. <laughs> Never mind. That's the way it rolls. Before we get into it, Andrew, I was just, well, firstly, welcome. Thank you. And I was just wondering whether you'd like to share a little bit about what you do. Thanks. Yes. Thank you, Bernadette. Well, uh, yes, my role, Business Development Manager, Architecture and Design, is really with WeatherTechs. We manufacture Australian reconstituted hardwood products, which are very environmental friendly, environmentally friendly, I should say, very, very small carbon footprint, actually a carbon negative footprint. So my role is to educate architects, building designers around our product range. And we also do continuing professional development or CPD sessions, one of which is all about addressing condensation and mould in stud wall construction. And as you say, mould in buildings is something that we have in only relatively recent times realised is quite a health issue. Yeah. Now, I remember growing up in the house that we had built in the 1960s. Uh, that place had, as many houses did in those days, mouldy bathroom ceilings. It wasn't unusual. 
These days, it, it is a bit more unusual to see mould growing so obviously, but we didn't know in those days that it was unhealthy. Yeah, and so I have to say my level of understanding of the extent of the mould problem in buildings is, is really limited to what we find in reno projects. And, you know, generally the bathrooms are nearly always mouldy. Often, like we're doing one project at the moment where must have poor ventilation because the bedrooms have developed mould around the ceiling. And as I said, I know from listening to a podcast that that does create serious health problems. So is it being viewed more as a form of contamination? Well, there's different causes for mould and then there's different areas in which the mould can occur so the obvious mould that we see in steamy bathrooms that are poorly ventilated or bedrooms where we may be less inclined to open our windows and allow fresh air into a bedroom because depending on how you sleep, a lot of people do like to sleep with the windows and doors closed to keep it quieter and so on, get up, go and you know, get, get out into the day and forget about opening up the windows to get fresh air. So it's generally caused, surface mould is generally caused by poor ventilation and then we have other mould issues, which we call interstitial mould. And interstitial mould means that the mould is growing inside somewhere where we can't see it. And this is the basis for one of the, uh, the workshops that I run, um, addressing condensation and mould in stud wall construction. And what it talks about is the cause of mould actually getting inside the stud walls. So as most of your listeners will know, Lightweight construction generally consists of a stud frame and you'll have plasterboard on the inside, you'll have some form of cladding on the outside. And in years gone by, these walls would be ventilated. And getting back to the house I grew up in that was built in the 60s, it had all sorts of vents actually in the walls allowing air to circulate through the cavities. Now, what happened about 20 years ago is we decided to make our homes a lot more thermally efficient so that they required less heating and cooling, depending on the time of year. And as a result, we blocked up all these vents, or we didn't put them in new homes in the first place, and we stuffed all of the walls full of, generally, fibreglass insulation. And so there lies the problem. We no longer have air circulating inside the cavities, and uh, as a result, condensation gets inside the walls. Interestingly, through the plasterboard, because plasterboard or Giprock is the common brand, is quite um, permeable to vapour. And so this generally occurs at its worst in winter, where we've got cold weather outside and we've got artificial heating inside. People are inside breathing, and as they breathe, they're exhaling or inhaling oxygen and exhaling moist uh, carbon dioxide plus a number of other gases. This moist air that we're exhaling plus heating devices can also create vapour, uh, moisture vapour in the air, especially gas heaters that are unflued. And if there's no way for the vapour to escape, either through an open window or an open door or underneath a crack in the door or whatever, what tends to happen is it actually pushes through the plasterboard. And then instead of it hitting an air gap inside the, the wall cavity, it gets caught up in all the tiny little fibres of the fibreglass insulation. And we also have the issue of the temperature change because inside the wall, the temperature is lower. And so when we have warmer moisture-laden air or vapour pushing through the plasterboard, it then hits the fibreglass fibres where it cools down. 
The act of cooling down causes the condensation, i.e. the vapour or gas condensing from a gas to a liquid and making the insulation wet. And so therein lies the problem. It's blocking off the vents in the wall. It's uh, putting in insulation and, and reducing air circulation within, inside these wall cavities. And then not having a way for the moisture to escape. And over a, a long-ish winter where this is building up on a day-by-day basis, I'm told that some of the insulation can be so wet from condensation that the bats are actually bowing in the middle from the weight of the moisture trapped in there. This is a big issue. And in New Zealand, they discovered this probably about 10 years ago. And the big difference in New Zealand compared to Australia is they have, generally speaking, compared to most of Australia, colder, longer winters than we do. So they do a lot more heating than we do. They also have a lot more timber-clad stock of homes than we do because of their seismic conditions. And lightweight-clad buildings can rock and roll with a bit of an earthquake, whereas brick veneer tends to crack and fall down. So they had the perfect conditions for this. And when they started opening up their walls and finding all this mouldy insulation inside, they're going, oh, there must be a leak in here. And then after further research, because they decided to call it leaky building syndrome at first, because there were so many buildings that were affected by it, Further research showed that it wasn't actually a leak, but the issue that I described, condensation getting trapped inside the wall cavities, not able to escape, not able to dry out, and eventually going mouldy. So this is a big issue. And as we all know now, probably since the 1980s, which is fairly recent, that uh, mould spores are very bad for our lungs. And if you're a very young person or a very old person or you have a pre-existing lung condition, it can lead to pneumonia and all sorts of complications. So we want to make sure that we get mould away from our homes and buildings. So with this interstitial mould problem, is there normally any evidence of it outside, like on the face of the wall? Like, does the, is it common for the wall to look mouldy? Well, no, it's not. And this is the problem. So when we talk about, you know, my bathroom in northwestern Sydney in the 60s and 70s before Dad put the Mistral exhaust fan in in about 1973, you could see that mould and you could hopefully try and deal with it because the reason why we had mouldy bathroom ceilings, especially in winter, you're having a hot shower, the steam rises from the shower, it hits the cooler plasterboard ceiling and because we have a temperature change, we get condensation and the temperature at which the steam vapour condenses from a gas to a liquid is called the dew point, D-E-W, as in dew, And uh, so that's why we end up with those little droplets forming on the ceiling. And then, of course, left long enough, generally over the winter months, it eventually becomes mouldy. And if you get to it straight away, you can clean it off. But unfortunately, once mould takes a hold inside plasterboard, it's very hard to get rid of it. And I remember Dad wallpapered the bathroom ceiling, but within a few couple of years, the mould started coming through the wallpaper anyway. So, you know, there's, there is the evidence, the, the stuff you can see, when it's inside the wall, Bernadette, often you don't know it's there. And if you did know it was there, it's going to be pretty nasty if it's actually coming from the inside out. It may not be, though. If you're seeing it on the inside of the wall, chances are you just need to open up the windows and doors in that room, let the air circulate through, clean the mould off, let it dry out really well, and chances are it's just surface mould happening on the inside of the wall anyway. I think if you had mould coming through from the cavities to the plasterboard, you'd really be looking at having to reline the plasterboard the whole place. It is an issue. 
Yeah, so, well, we have a student who actually her home was flooded and it became so wet that the whole house just went mouldy and in the end it had to be demolished. She became very sick as a result of it and my understanding is the illnesses are, it can be responsible for some autoimmune illnesses and can be quite devastating long-term. Uh, look, uh, it's like any parasite. I mean, you don't want them in your body, these little, no. these little things. So I'm not really, I don't really have a lot of information about the medical um, implications. Yeah. But as I mentioned earlier, it really wasn't until the 80s that we realised how dangerous mould was because, as I say, you know, I remember as a kid, it wasn't just our bathroom. You go to your neighbours' houses and they'd all have mouldy bathroom ceilings too and we didn't really, it was just the way it was until we got mechanical ventilation. So the good thing is when we get back to what the area that I've sort of, I guess, become slightly specialist in, which is interstitial mould, mm. mould growing inside lightweight stud wall systems. And this is irrespective of the type of plasterboard or cladding, the brand of plasterboard, the brand of cladding you have. It, it affects, it can affect any type of lightweight stud wall construction. Uh, not so much brick veneer because brick veneer already has a cavity built into it. So you get air circulation happening, but there is a reasonably easy fix to address this problem. And normally when I do the uh, CPD presentation, we obviously show images and sectional diagrams and so on, but I'll, I'll try and describe to you now that we understand where the mold is coming from, so we've got um, vapour occurring inside the room. It's pushing outwards because any sort of pressure inside a vessel is just by physics, the pure nature of physics, going to want to get out. If we yeah. think about blowing up a balloon, if we blow up a balloon and then let go of the end, the air inside the balloon at higher pressure will come out until we get pressure equalisation between the inside of the balloon and the outside atmosphere. The same thing goes for a room. So if we have people inside a room breathing out water vapour. We have the heater, especially gas heaters, producing water vapour. The vapour pressure will be higher inside that vessel or room, and it's going to try and force its way out whichever way it can, and part of it at least will be going through the plasterboard and getting trapped in the insulation, like I said. So that's the problem. And then it condenses when we have that change in temperature between the warmer room and the colder cavities. So what we need to do is there's a two-step process because... There's a third thing happening here, which I hadn't mentioned yet, and that is you're probably familiar, Bernadette, with sarking yes. or building wraps. You're I was thinking, wondering about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the other issue that we need to address because building sarkings are really designed to be a secondary barrier against rain getting into the cavity wall system should there be any breach of the cladding or breach of a flashing around a window or something like that, if water does make its way in, and you know, the building could be perfectly built, but if you have a very high pressure storm event, you're gonna get water pressured into the facade of a house. And there's always gonna be very extreme water, weather events where moisture is actually getting in. And so that sarking is designed, if you like, a bit like a glad wrap around the building. And that's the problem to stop the moisture coming in uh, if it gets past the cladding or past any flashings around windows or doors. We don't want it getting into the cavity. So it'll, it'll trickle down the face of the sarking and just drain away. The problem with that is when we're wrapping our buildings, so let's just talk about what a section of the wall would be. We basically have a stud frame, a timber frame, or it could be a steel frame. 
And then on the inside of that, we have our plasterboard. On the inside, in between the studs, we have fiberglass insulation, generally speaking. On the outside of the studs, wrapped around the building is that sarking or building wrap. You know, it's made out of different materials. Generally speaking, it's a flexible sort of fabric type material. Sometimes it can be made out of bitumous paper and and there's different materials that have evolved over the years. And then we have our cladding, which is generally fixed through the sarking into the studs. So that sarking is trapping the moisture in. The first thing that we need to do to address this problem is to introduce a different type of sarking, which is called a vapor permeable membrane or a VPM. And these are a new, relatively new type of sarking, at least to the Australian market. They've been on the on the market in Europe and America for many, many years. But this issue is, I guess, more recent down here because colder jurisdictions have been making their homes more thermally efficient for a much longer period of time than we have down here in Australia and New Zealand. So they have a bit more experience with this. And so these sarkings have been on the market over there for 30, 40 years. So there's different types of products. The types of brands that you might look out for are CSR Bradford EnviroSeal, which is a type of sarking or building wrap, which will stop moisture coming in from the outside, but will still allow uh, vapor to pass through from the inside. They're quite clever how they do this. There's another product called Watergate by a company called Thermocraft. We have quite a strong relationship with Thermocraft and they have fabulous products that are very good people to deal with. And it's actually a New Zealand brand, but they are manufacturing here in Australia. There's also Tyvek, there's Procter Wrap. Uh, there's a company called Ametalin that make a product as well. All of these products are called vapor permeable membranes and they're what's called a class four membrane. And I've just got to try and remember the uh, Australian standard. I did have it in my head this morning, but my memory for numbers isn't what it used to be. But anyway, I'll give you that for the notes. I'll give you that for the notes as well. But uh, yeah, it's a class four membrane according to this particular standard. And it's the first step in our two-step design solution to overcome the problem. And so what these vapor permeable membranes do is they stop rainwater coming from the outside, still allow vapor to pass through from the inside. And it's how they've woven these fabrics is how they achieve it. The next step that we need to do, and it's very simple, is we need to introduce a new section within the wall, a new area, if you like, which is outside of the vapor permeable membrane, but behind the cladding. And so in order to do that, we just need to add, and it only needs to be nine or 10 millimeters deep, but a cavity batten. And what this does is it moves the coldest part of the system to the outside of the vapor permeable membrane. So as the vapor pressure gets pushed through the plasterboard, the insulation is also very easy for vapor to pass through because of the way it's woven together as thousands of little fibers with lots of air in between. And it then goes through the vapor permeable membrane, which is also very permeable to vapor. It hits the cavity, which now is the the coldest part of the system. And that cavity, as I said, is about nine or 10 millimeters deep. The water condenses from a vapour or a gas to a liquid and then runs down the outside face of the vapour permeable membrane or the inside face of the cladding and then drains out the cavity slot at the bottom. Problem solved. And you've really only added about 9 to 10 millimetres to the thickness of your walls, which is important. We don't want to make the walls too thick because real estate's expensive. The cost of a vapour permeable membrane over a standard type of sarking 
is not that much more in terms of the overall cost of a project. It's quite a simple fix. And there's a number of companies that you can talk to about this level of detailing, CSR, WeatherTex, you know, other, other fibre cement cladding companies, although WeatherTex is not fibre cement, WeatherTex is reconstituted Australian hardwood, therefore much better for the environment, but we can talk to you about it. Um, and also the people that make the vapour permeable membranes, so Thermocraft, CSR Bradford, Metalin, Procter Wrap, uh, and so on. So that, okay. I guess, is in a nutshell what okay. the, uh, the solution is. As I said earlier, if anyone's kind of unsure about it, you can contact any cladding manufacturer pretty much, but please always reach out to WeatherTex, and any insulation manufacturer, and they'll be able to give you details on how to design these walls. Now, I've got a few questions. So um, I'm thinking about this in relation to our renovators. So I'm guessing it's probably re relates to post-war homes predominantly. Yeah, well, it's going to relate mainly to homes that have been built in the last 20 years because okay. prior to that, like up until about 2000, the NCC slash BCA standards didn't require us to make our homes as thermally efficient as they have done since about 1999. I think it was around 1999 slash 2000 that they started introducing yeah. in New South Wales the BASIC system yeah. and in other jurisdictions it's NATHERS. And that's all about window performance, wall performance, roof performance, that type of thing yeah. in terms of thermal utility. So it's really only affecting houses that were built in the last sort of 20, 25 years. Yeah. And the other thing is I'm assuming that to retrofit this is a major exercise. Well, it sort of is. And it's probably not something that I would suggest you would tackle unless there was evidence of an issue. And look, let's face it, in a place like Sydney, we don't really have long cold winters. We do, we might have heating for maybe three months of the year, but it's not like perhaps Tasmania or parts of Victoria where they have maybe heating for six months, seven months of the year. And it's going to be more of an, an issue in those jurisdictions because of their climate. So I would suggest that if we're doing any renovations, well, anywhere that, where it's a bit warmer than, say, Victoria, uh, and, and the, the southern regions. And, and incidentally, we'll talk about climate zones in a moment because they will affect what we need to do. But let's say sort of Victorian border north, it's probably not going to be as much of an issue as it is in the colder areas. And if you did come across this, if you were renovating a house and mm. you pulled off the cladding or you pulled off plasterboard and you found mould in the walls, I'd be looking for the cause. So the first thing I'd be looking for is, is there a leak in the wall? Because that's obviously the first obvious cause. And if you can't find any evidence of water tracking, and generally if there is a water leak, you will see telltale uh, yeah. tracks of water somewhere, then you go, okay, well, maybe this is an issue like we've spoken about today. Then you would get some expert advice, probably from your cladding manufacturer, or if, you aren't, if you're not looking at replacing the cladding, your plasterboard manufacturer, and just see what you may or may not be able to do. But if you do need to change the sarking, you'll have to take the cladding off yeah. to do that. That doesn't necessarily mean that you can't reuse the cladding. If you're careful in taking it off, you can reuse it, fill the holes, and yeah. sometimes it's just more cost-effective to replace it. As much as I hate to say that, it all comes down to the cost of the labour associated with being very careful taking it off and putting it back on again versus the cost of buying new material. But we also should take into account the environmental cost of buying new material if yeah. you don't have to. 
Yeah. Um, so that's something else to keep in mind. But yeah, look, I think it's something where you need to just weigh up each project on a project by project basis. Around climate zones, the NCC changed last year and from the 1st of May this year, they've adopted at least one part of our two step design solution and that is the vapour permeable membrane. And they have said that if you're in climate zones six, seven and eight, which are the cooler climate zones, so climate zone six includes places like Hornsby, Campbelltown, Borkham Hills, anywhere that's about 30 k's from the coast, where you do get cooler winters. I was in Thornley near Hornsby as a kid, gets pretty cold up there in winter by Sydney standards. That's climate zone six. So if you're building a new home uh, up there or doing major renovations and you need to use sarking, you would have to use a class four membrane, vapor permeable membrane as you're sarking. But it doesn't request in the NCC for the cavity, unless you're in Tasmania. In Tasmania, their local BCA requests cavity as well as the sarking. But in most of the rest of Australia, they haven't adopted the cavity. At WeatherTechs, we recommend you do both, pretty much for any climate zone apart from the tropics, which is climate zone one. Isn't that strange? Because in the tropics, everything goes mouldy. Yeah, well, it's a different problem up there. Uh, Up there... I've, I've stayed in plenty of hotels and resorts in places like Port Douglas where they just keep the air conditioning on forever and I don't think they ever service or clean the filters or not as much as they need to. And you walk into the room and often you get hit with that mould smell. Yeah. And generally what I do when I arrive in rooms that are like that is if I can't get another room, which isn't mouldy, I just turn off the air conditioner and open up the whole place and let the air sort of circulate while we're out swimming or whatever and then come back and turn it all on. And I've even been known to ask for a vacuum cleaner so I could clean the air conditioner filter. Uh, It's just me. I don't like mould smell. It is a problem. And, like, you know, as as I mentioned before, it does have serious health implications. We lived a couple of years in Darwin and everyone had these things that capture moisture in their wardrobes. Otherwise, all your shoes went mouldy. Yeah. Yeah, and it's amazing that it's not a problem there. But I guess they don't have that change in temperature from inside to out. Well, I think the mould in those areas is because the problem's almost inverted to a point. It's hot outside pretty much all the time and it's air-conditioned inside pretty much all the time. If your air-conditioner is working properly and it's taking the moisture out of the air, it shouldn't be a problem. But when you get areas like wardrobes where you don't have a lot of air circulating... Yeah, you do get mouldy shoes. And I've had mouldy shoes in poorly ventilated wardrobes in Sydney in the past as well, you know. So, uh, And you can get those things that extract the moisture out of the air and you've got to empty out the bottom of them because the water actually collects in them. And you can even get wardrobe, I think they're called wardrobe dehumidifiers, and they're they're almost like a heater that that run in the wardrobe and uh, and keep the air dry. Um, But it's all about the circulation of air and keeping air moving. And another big trend, well, it's not a big trend yet in Australia, but it's becoming that way in Europe. And you've probably heard of passive house design. Yes. And passive homes are ones which are designed so well that they don't need heating or cooling. And they generally have an air recirculation system and they design the air recirculation system so it pretty much gets to every part of the home. And I don't know how often it does. It changes the air so many times an hour, but still maintains uh, the same temperatures in the in the home due to the use of thermal mass and other techniques. Which So I think that we're learning more and more about this. And I think that the average Australian home, uh, as it's built, say, by most project builders, is there's a lot of room for improvement in yeah. terms of not needing to air condition as much and 
and a bit more thermal consideration aspect on the block and so on. We are getting better, but we've still got a long way to come. And I think that air circulation and the whole passive house concept is actually going to become more and more popular because it's also about having a healthy home and a healthy environment to live. Oh, I absolutely agree, I think. And I think it's like anything, they're built to a price. Mm. The minimum NCC standard is, is the minimum standard. You know, we, we would like to think that we can go beyond that. And I know that some project builders will give you options to upgrade insulation and do other things. And I know that the aspect of the home is, is taken into account a lot more now with the BASIC system in New South Wales and, and NatHERS. But we've still got a, a way to go, I think, before we're starting to build homes as efficiently as they can be. And it doesn't necessarily need to cost an arm and a leg extra to do that either. I know a lot of what we've talked about today probably relates more to people with their own home, but I'm just wondering as, because we, you know, a lot of our audience are renovators for profit, what our responsibility is. So you mentioned that the NCC, and for those who don't know, that's the new equivalent to the Building Code of Australia. It's called the National Construction Code. So you're saying that for the permeable membrane, that's covered most areas, including some of Sydney, but particularly the colder states, not the tropics. And that only in Tasmania have some of the councils adopted the cavity measures to improve or reduce the moisture. Yeah, Um, actually the Tasmanian BCA, because each state has its own BCA and then the national code is the, the national construction code. And so the Tasmanian BCA requires both a class four vapor permeable membrane and a cavity. Uh, whereas most other jurisdictions and only in climate zones 6, 7 and 8, the cooler areas, which includes parts of Sydney, require only the vapour permeable membrane. But like what I said before, that's the minimum standard. I think that for the cost of cavity battens, which is so low, you know, yeah. compared to the whole cost of a home, we're talking about a drop in the bucket. It'll yeah. just mean that the house is a lot more user-friendly, safer and cleaner to live in. So I'm just wondering, as a renovator, if we open a wall up, and we find that it has a moisture problem and that that problem is not due to a leak. It's due to this interstitial mould issue. What's our responsibility? I think the first responsibility is to try and get the mould out and clean it up. And the other thing too, Bernadette, is quite often, you know, people are renovating just one part of a house. Yeah. They're not necessarily, you know, pulling the cladding or the linings off all the walls. So if it's in one part of the house, you can possibly presume that it's, it's in other parts of the house as well. So it comes down to what you are prepared to do versus what's in the budget to repair it versus so many other factors which can make the whole thing very subjective. So I think, you know, it'd be nice to think that people would try and do the right thing, but where do you draw the line? There's, if you're only planning on pulling off the back wall because you're extending out the back and then there's the front and side walls as well, I mean, do you pull the cladding off those and, and put a new membrane on? Or, you know, I think probably the best thing to do would be to get some advice. And there are other companies out there. There's another company, I'll mention their name. They're called Pro Climber. So P-R-O, new word, C-L-I-M-A. And they specialise in these types of situations in prevention of condensation in wall and roof systems and also potentially addressing them. 
And there may be other treatments or other ways that it could be addressed. If you are adding to a home, you would obviously need to, if you're in climate zone six, the minimum requirement would be to use a fast four vapor permeable membrane as the sarking. I would probably add to that, add cavity battens as well. They're not really gonna cost you that much more. And it will mean that what you've added to the home is going to be best practice from the condensation point of view. But it's a pretty hard question to answer because if you're renovating a home to make a profit, it needs to be a balance between what you can afford to do versus, you know, what you'd like to do versus, you know, issues that you're going to come across in your renovation. It does become a bit of a moral dilemma. Like we have a few things that we say we spend the money regardless of whether we get it back because they're things like, you know, putting in the, they're not called earth leakage breakers, but oh, now it's code. So but before it was compulsory, we did it anyhow because we figured if it saved a life, it was worth spending the money. But there is that balancing act. And I'm thinking that... Is, is it possible to detect the problem without opening a wall up? It sure is. You can get moisture meters. I've bought and sold and renovated over the years myself, and I always, always get a property inspection. Yeah. Just always do it. And I've been put off a couple of properties in the past. One was a brand new apartment, actually. And when they put the moisture meter on the wall, they said, well, the walls are wet. You know, there's plasterboard over something but there's a lot of moisture we're being that's being detected so the only caveat on that is if you use a moisture meter in the middle of summer when everything's dried out to a point it may not highlight the problem but if there's mold in there and the mold's alive and it's active there is going to be a certain amount of moisture so you could put a moisture meter on the wall get a property inspection you could make sure that you buy properties that are built before a certain time as well. And ones that were built, say, 20 years ago are definitely going to have insulation in the wall if they're brick veneer or lightweight clad. So maybe you look at buying properties that don't have insulation in the wall. They're not going to be as thermally efficient, but at least you may not have this problem. When, when you are doing renovations and you are adding to a building, you must go the minimum standard. As you mentioned before with your earth leakage, which is yeah. things like smoke detectors, the other thing too that a lot of people don't realise when they're buying older homes, especially very old homes, is rewiring is a big issue. Oh, and yeah. that can cost you 20 grand to rewire a house, you know. And that's, We've got a whole training on that. So we're yeah. pretty good on the due diligence. And I think 20-year-old homes are great renovation projects because they're pretty easy to get up to speed, to look great, and mm. without they're built using modern building standards. But... This is a problem that I had not considered before and I'm thinking that it probably does need to become part of the due diligence process because if you can determine that it has the problem before you buy it, I, I do a lot of apartments, so they're all, most of them are solid bricks, so it's not an issue. Yeah. But for anyone doing houses, that is something that they've got a, don't want to be faced with a moral dilemma, then probably need to. I think just be aware that it, it could be an issue. As we've said before, it depends where you are. And the further north you go from, say, you know, Wollongong upwards, even maybe sort of south coast uh, to a point as well, somewhere like, you know, around uh, Huskisson, sort of Highams Beach, what do you call that area? That whole sort of area down towards St George's Basin, that's probably okay too. It's, it's when you, you're in the colder jurisdictions where it's going to become more of an issue. I wouldn't get too concerned about it, but, you know, if you get your property inspection, mention to the inspector, it's a lightweight clad building. It's probably got wall insulation. I doubt very much that they've used a breathable sarking or membrane and cavity battens. So can you please just make sure that there's no um, high levels of moisture 
in the walls. And they should test for that anyway, but just mention when you're getting the inspection done. And it is something that affects, you know, as we said, houses that haven't been designed to address the problem that have been built in the last 20 years. Having said that, I know of houses that were built in the 1980s that had insulation put in the walls, because remember that NCC is minimum standard and a lot of people out there do better than the minimum standard. So I remember my best mate, they had their house renovated. They put a first story addition on. It was all light, lightweight clad in WeatherTech, funnily enough. And this is going back to about 1980. They put insulation in all of their walls because they knew that it would make the house perform better thermally, even though they didn't have to back in those days. So just be aware. That's just something else that you need to maybe put on your checklist when you are looking at a property. And if you do decide to make an offer, please always make it subject to a property inspection and mention to your inspector lightweight clad, check for moisture in the walls, want to make sure that there's no sort of you know, trapped condensation slash mould problems. Uh, and then if you do that due diligence and you still find issues, well, then you just have to address them and do the best you can to fix the problem because, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I want to make sure that if I'm renovating a project, I'm making it better and, and if there is an issue, yeah. there's yeah, they're, they're, that we address it so that we're not making it somebody else's problem. Exactly. Well, listen, we better wrap up here because I think we've addressed the topic adequately for now. Thank you for making us aware of this. It's certainly not something that I had given a lot of thought to up to this point, and um, I appreciate your time. Now, what we will do is we'll include all the details, images, and all the um, contacts that you have shared in this episode in the show notes. So for anyone that's wanting more information, I'll also include Andrew Savage's contact details. Is that okay with you, Andrew? Yeah, that's fine. No problem at all. Maybe include my email address and if yeah. people want to drop me a line, they're very yeah. happy very happy to respond to them. Yeah, so thanks again. That's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. No worries. So um, that's it for today. Now, if you have enjoyed this episode and got value out of it, we'd really love to hear from you. So if you could just head over to iTunes and leave us a review, we would love that. We read them all and it gives us the wind under our wings to keep going. So thanks and see you next week. This is the She Renovates podcast. To discover how to harness the power of renovating, check out theschoolofrenovating.com.